The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I have a fascinating guest. I interview author, feminist activist, and philanthropist Judy Saryan. Uh, Judy and I discuss her efforts to bring Armenian feminist and social justice activist, author Zabel Yesayan's work to a wider audience, as well as feminist author Surpohi Dusap and Judy's own upcoming book. So stay tuned. Judy Saryan has had an epic career in the financial industry, and you might remember her as a pundit on CNBC, CNN, and other outlets. Judy retired from her successful career in order to pursue her passion for literature and the history of Armenian women's activism. Ten years ago, after watching a documentary entitled Finding Zabel Yesayan, she was determined to introduce this groundbreaking author's legacy to a wider audience. Judy is also co-editor of the first English translation of Serpuhi Dusap's Maida, Echoes of Protest, a novel originally published in 1883, advocating equal rights for women. Now, Judy is working on her own upcoming book. Good morning, Judy. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Vic, and thank you so much for having me here. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, It's a pleasure because until recently, I didn't know about you. And the more I read about you and your work, (laughs) not only am I impressed, but it's it's eye-opening. And I'm embarrassed to say, as someone who considers himself a feminist, you know, I tell the story that when I was like three, I started to notice the the, the double standard of how women were treated. And uh, even, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, the way my dad would sort of treat my mom as opposed to like other men. Uh, and I would stand up to, to him. And I was from like very early on, I was a feminist. And I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't familiar with uh, The fact that we've had Armenian feminist writers uh, and what you've done is you've brought them alive and you've introduced them. And uh, so let's, um, you know, let's talk about your work because, you know, you've, you've had a great uh, career in, in the financial industry and all of that, uh, but you've always been a philanthropist and an artist and a writer and you've transitioned into doing this great work that you're doing. Let's just talk about where you are today and, and, uh, and the work that you've done in, in that field. Okay, well, today, yes. Well, a lot has happened, you know, in the last 10 years, really. It's, it's been about 10 years that I've really gotten to work on, um, on the projects, the, uh, the, the, the big project, which was to publish the works of Zabel Yesayan, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, brilliant, courageous, Armenian writer and political activist. Um, we finally, you know, we published several of her works and we started 11 years ago or 10 years ago, sorry. And this is, um, you know, it was, it was really the beginning for me, but also I think the beginning for many people uh, opening their eyes about Armenian feminists. Um, we certainly weren't the first ones to be focused on Zabel Yesayan. There were others and, you know, I, I should mention them, but there, but they were, in different places. They were in France, and I'm happy to say many of them were men in France. Um, There was a a woman in Canada, Virginia Rowe, a scholar who wrote a book, um, including Zabelia Sayan, and published it in the early 2000s. Um, And there were feminists in in Turkey, including the writer Elif Shafak, who was also very intrigued by Zabelia Sayan. And um, so there were others who were starting early on, but really the, the, the first effort to make her work available in English 
um, was by a small group of us um, in Boston. But that has really, um, as I said, blossomed into many other things. And I can, I can go on and on. And what I'll, I'll tell you is another book was recently translated and published in English. And um, this one includes three of her stories um, and they're fascinating. And the middle one is Enough. Enough is her, is her cry for peace. And she wrote it during the Balkan Wars before the genocide. Um, it was after the massacres of Adana in 1909, where she had actually experienced it, you know, through her body, you know, by going to Adana after the massacres and working with the orphans and, and seeing the, the suffering and the plight of these people after there was this horrible, um, you know, starting out as kind of a, a riot and turning into like just this bloody attack on the peaceful Armenian population of Adana, um, where we're estimating about 30,000 Armenians uh, and Greeks died. And I think there were about 2,000 um, Muslims who also died because the Armenians were able to defend themselves in certain situations. But by and large, they were just, you know, um, they were just women and children, as often is the case, who, who were defenseless. Zabel went there to Adana in 1909, immediately after the, the massacres, and experienced what the people were going through. She was, she was there helping. Um, she, she became, in effect, the leader of this group that was sent by the Armenian Patriarchate of Constantinople, and she was working with the Turkish leaders, and she she wrote uh, privately to her husband about how um, how worried she was about the the actions of the Turkish leaders, which included Cemal Pasha, one of the um, architects of the genocide six years later. So it was an amazing book. She published it in in 1911. So the massacre is 1909. She published it in 1911, and then she wrote a book. Um, or not a book, but a, a, a treatise on peace and the importance of peace and why war hurts the most vulnerable. And it doesn't matter if they're Armenians or if they're Muslims. And she was writing about the refugees coming from the Balkans through Constantinople and, and how pitiful they looked and the fear in their eyes. And she said, it only reminds me of my experiences in Adana. So her humanity is, is you know, incredible. You know, after seeing what happened to her community in Adana, she was also empathizing with the Muslim community that was that was actually, you know, um, forced to leave their homes in the Balkans and come to to uh, you know Turkey. Um, so they were literally moved. And the irony of this, I mean, it's it's just so intensely ironic that many of these Muslims were put in homes and on farms that were owned by Armenians and Greeks who had been massacred and then killed and would be killed in the genocide. They were basically brought in to live in these areas and to reduce the percentage of Armenians in these areas so that the Armenians would not even be able to defend themselves when the genocide came. So this is a fascinating, important book that was, was published. so brave and and ahead of her time i mean i just it's so fascinating if you're just tuning in uh this is the blunt post with vic uh, on kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host victor ami and i'm speaking with judy saryan whom i call a renaissance woman because she's had uh so many different successes in different fields from the financial industry being a pundit on uh, CNN, MSNBC, um, different networks, uh, as well as now also through her writing, editing and bringing and translating or being part of a group that translates very important works of um, Armenian women, feminist women, uh, about the genocide. And for those of you who've been listening, to give you some context, the Armenian genocide, generally we say it happened in 1915. We say that because uh, the on April 24th, 1915 was when uh, the, center, the central power in, in Istanbul or Constantinople at the time was when they arrested about 200 Armenian intellectuals, um, leaders, um, 
those that they thought would uh, uh, pose the biggest threat in notifying the world about it, they were um, imprisoned and most of them were killed. Uh, however, the Armenian genocide was really a process that started a um, long time before that and it lasted until about 1923. Um, what, what happened before 1914 when World War War started was from 1896 on, there were multiple massacres in different towns and villages. And what uh, Judy has been talking about, Adana, was one of the towns where Armenians were massacred, um, which was kind of a foreshadowing of what was to come. Um, Judy, so uh, about Zabel, uh, what struck me about her is, well, first of all, I think she, her life would make such a great film um, because her life wasn't just being an activist, um, a political scientist and a writer, but it's very glamorous too. I mean, she, you know, she grew up uh, in Constantinople and she went to Europe, got her education. She traveled throughout uh, the region. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a very sort of a tumultuous uh, sort of a life, almost like Lord Byron in a way, you know, it's very similar to his, uh, experience, uh, I dare to say, and you've you've been part of a group uh, and have really spearheaded the translation of um, three of our books, um, and uh, of course, at the time she wrote what was happening to her and her people, which was the genocide, um, and yet she was sort of even above that, and she was advocating for peace and a solution. So she was in the solution. Um, one of the things when I read about her, because I, I, I knew about her very passively until I met you and I started to really dig in as, uh, the circumstances of her death, um, which have been very sort of murky and, uh, wh what have you found out about that? Yeah, it is very murky. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, another reason why Isabel's life would be an amazing, um, would be amazing on film is, as you said, she had a very, a very dramatic life, uh, you know, and um, so she was able to escape on April 24th from the Turkish uh, effort to, to erase her. And uh, she, she uh, wasn't at home when they came for her. Her mother was there and her young son. Her mother was able to get word to her that they had come for her come to get her, to take her to, you know, the central prison in Istanbul. And she immediately went into hiding and she hid, we think for roughly three months in Istanbul, in Constantinople, but we're not exactly sure. And then we do know that she basically dressed up as like a, you know, a, almost like a, a peasant woman, a Greek woman seamstress and, and said at the border that she was going to Bulgaria uh, to meet her daughter because she was going to sew her daughter's wedding gown. So she came up with this elaborate, you know, story and she was able to get into Bulgaria and that helped her then on the road to escape um, the efforts to, to kill her. But again, she, this was not the first time that an empire came after her. So that was her, the first time. Then and, and not, to, not to cut you off, but she was, I believe, the only woman that was targeted by by the orchestrators of the Armenian genocide as part of the 200 plus intellectuals and, and leading uh, people to arrest and to get rid of, correct? That's correct, yes, as far as we know. So I wanted to go back to, um, yes, to Zabel in, um, in, she had just published this book in, in 1911 about, uh, about the massacres of Adana. And it was really one of the very first books that had been written about any of these ongoing massacres of Armenians that had been continuing since the 1890s. And that's before, because before um, uh, 1908, the Armenians were absolutely forbidden to bear witness to what was happening. So even though there were many writers, they had to escape the country in order to write anything about the, the, uh, the horrors that were happening in the Armenian provinces 
you know, on the lands that the ancestral lands of the Armenians. They were absolutely forbidden in in uh, in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. So, um, be, but because of 1908 and the Young Turk Revolution, Zabel Yassayan was able to write about it in very direct, um, honest, powerful, painful terms, and she even prefaces it with these statements about being a citizen of this land with the same rights and the same responsibilities as any other citizen. So she is basically putting herself on the same level as the Muslims, which was unheard of because the Armenians were always considered the dimmies along with the Jews, you know, second, third class citizens. So she was saying that it's my responsibility to bear witness to these events and not to show any prejudice because I'm Armenian. You know, think of this as just a, a woman, you know, expressing herself, you know, and in, 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 in the best way she can. So she, so all of this put her on a, you know, on a dangerous path um, because, because even though she wrote this in Armenian, there were many people who were translating the, the books because there were so many books being written by Armenians at this time, so many journals. I mean, there were just so many newspapers, journals. It was a very um, active literary scene in Constantinople. And people were translating it. And of course, the authorities knew about her. So she was considered dangerous. And she was considered dangerous specifically because she was bearing witness. She was telling the truth. She was telling what was happening. And that was contradicting the false narrative that was being put out there. So now, of course, we jump to, you know, eventually after the genocide, after she again bore witness after the genocide, in um, 1917 and 1918, she found eyewitness accounts of the genocide and she published them, um, particularly the work of Haik, uh, the, the testimony of Haik Turoyan. Um, who uh, was, was a soldier uh, in the Ottoman army and he was translating for a German officer. She took down his testimony um, and uh, it's, it's extremely powerful. And again, we're working, I'm working with another person on, on getting that book published. Um, that book is, is, is uh, The Agony of a People. And it, it includes a lot about the experiences, the treatment of women during the genocide, and it, it is horrifying. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I can talk about some of the details, but it's horrifying. Many women and children were enslaved in, in Turkish households, in Muslim households, and women were, were sold in auctions. And, and uh, these are the kinds of things that, that she was willing to address. No one else wanted to talk about this because these were very difficult uh, you know, it was it was extraordinarily difficult for um, the Armenian community. Um, but she wrote about this, and it was presented to uh, Nubar Pasha at the um, the peace conference in Paris in 1918. So it was it was part of the uh, uh, of the evidence that was presented at the peace conference by um, the Armenian uh, uh, committee who was uh, who was presenting on the uh, the treatment of the Armenians during the war. So again and again, she is, you know, she's right at the edge. She's right there participating. And this then takes us to the to the part that you asked me about, uh, which is what what are this what are what's happened to her? How how uh, why is there? Uh, how did she die? Um, and and so eventually she decided to go back to, or to go for the very first time actually, to Soviet Armenia, because she was hoping that there, Armenians would be able to live in peace and that there would be a community. She was, she was desperately searching for that community of, of intellectuals, writers that she had, you know, which no longer existed in Istanbul, you know, after the war, it was, it was over. So she was desperately searching for that. So even though she had been living in France, she didn't want to stay there. She and, uh, and eventually both of her children, who were now, you know, uh, adults, they moved to uh, Soviet Armenia in 1933. And then um, she was teaching at the university. She was speaking out um, on behalf of other writers 
in Soviet Armenia, particularly Charens, who was very well known. And uh, she spoke at the very first writers conference in Moscow. And again, she caught the attention of the, uh, you know, of the people in power, the, uh, you know, the, the ones who, uh, you know, would make these kinds of decisions. And, and they decided that they did not want her um, to use her voice. They, they did not want, again, it was the same situation where here was this powerful woman using her voice on behalf of, of others, on behalf of what was right. Um, you know, she was, she was unbelievably courageous and she knew she, the risks she was taking. Um, so they came uh, to her house in Yerevan on Apovyan Street and they arrested her in uh, June of 1937. Now this is the Soviets? The Soviets, yes, the Soviets, which, you know, included Armenians. I mean, we don't right. often say that, but, you know, of course it was, it was during the time of, of uh, you know, of Stalin's reign of terror. You didn't have so a choice. Was, you had to either, you know, cooperate or you'd be dead. Exactly. And so others were also arrested. Uh, you know, Charens was arrested. He, he died very quickly. Um, and others as well, Burken Mahari. Um, so what happened then is that she, she was put in prison and uh, she was tried and she was, you know, she was uh, accused of being an enemy of the people, a spy. She was, um, she was sentenced to death. And then she did something which is not a surprise because it's Zabel Yassayan. She wrote a letter to the highest military court in Moscow, demonstrating her innocence. You know, saying this is this was a you know a false trial. This was not you know done you know fairly. Um, you know, I was uh, I was uh, you know whatever I said you know was misunderstood. Anyway, they commuted her sentence to ten years hard labor. So from there, uh, it was just it, she went back and forth to different prisons. Eventually, she was sent to a prison in Baku, in you know Azerbaijan. And in that prison, um, she was there with many other uh, women because many people had been, you know, arrested uh, during the reign of terror. And uh, we think, and this is the part we don't know, we think that she was going to be sent to the labor camps somewhere. We don't know whether it was in Central Asia or Siberia. We don't know. And we've lost a lot of this information, unfortunately, because um, there were floods in Yerevan and many of the papers uh, were lost. But we do have some of them, and we do have her letters that she wrote from the prison to her family members. So she had a, a daughter and a son. And, um, and I'm happy to say that her grandson lives in Yerevan today and her great-grandchildren. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, uh, oh, wow. and, yeah, and they keep alive her memory and, and you know, they're wonderful people. Wow. So anyway, she, um, yeah, so, so we don't know whether she was put on a boat, you know, and, uh, and, and got sick um, during the journey and was, was unfortunately, we, we think it's possible she was thrown overboard, mm. you know, just because she was sick. Right. Um, we don't know if she ever arrived at a labor camp, but there are people in Armenia, uh, particularly a scholar, uh, Dr. Irina Raplanyan, who, who is doing the research in the archives. Basically, yeah. last we know, she was in Azerbaijan. Yes. That, that's, that's recorded. Yes. What, that's, I mean, I keep saying this, but what a, an incredible film this would make, because it's such a universal story about um, social justice, equality, feminism, uh, and courage, you know, despite incredible threat and paying the ultimate price, um, doing this at a time when in a region, not only Armenians were second-class citizens, so were women treated so, uh, you know, badly. And, um, you know, between the Ottoman Empire and, and the Soviets and Stalin and Lenin and all of that, I mean, wow, talk about uh, David and Goliath's story. Um, it's really fascinating. 
If you're just tuning in, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic uh, on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and I'm speaking with Judy Saryan, whom I call a Renaissance woman because she's had uh, so many different successes in different fields from the financial industry, being a pundit on uh, CNN, MSNBC, um, different networks, uh, as well as now also through her writing, editing, and bringing and translating or being part of a group that translates very important works of um, Armenian women, feminist women uh, about the genocide. Moving away a little bit from um, uh, just for now from Zabel, uh, I want to um, talk about Serpohi uh, Dusap. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Yes. Who yes, I knew correct. nothing about. And I'm now fascinated by um, her book and how incredible she was and uh, courageous. Uh, the, the book she wrote was uh, 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 Maida, correct, in 1883, called uh, yeah. Maida Echoes of Protest. That's correct. Which, which is about, again, about social justice and about... Uh, it's, it's an activist book, essentially, from a woman. At this time, it's sort of unheard of, at least for me it was. Uh, tell us a little bit about her. Yes, Serpui Dusap was, um, you know, uh, she, she was the first woman, um, first Armenian woman, to, uh, to write any kind of novel. And that happened to be a feminist novel. So, so the first woman to write a novel was inspired to write a feminist novel, which I think tells you a lot about, um, you know, the the situation in 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 the Ottoman Empire at the time. It was it was uh, you know the women were were as you said they were very uh, poorly treated, particularly in the provinces. Um, you know they were like third class citizens, um, and it, it was a, a very difficult life. I mean there was no question about it. They were always under attack from, you know, from neighboring um, Muslim communities, um, you know, who are trying to take land away from the Armenians. This was becoming particularly uh, uh, problematic in the late 1880s, 1890s, that lands were being taken away. So, and, and women were abducted. This was not this was not unheard of. I mean, women were, they would come to villages and abduct women. So the situation for the women was terrible so that the Armenians themselves had to do everything possible to protect the women. And because of that, they were, they were highly restricted in anything they could do. The women couldn't you know, go out. They couldn't you know, go anywhere without a male escort. Um, and this was not only true in, in the provinces, it was true in Constantinople, because there was, there was such fear that they would be, they would be abducted. Yeah. I mean, literally, literally abducted. It was, and in Constantinople, it was the Janissaries who were this elite military corps that would abduct young boys and young girls from, from Christians, you know, different Christian groups. It was, uh, it was a frightening uh, prospect that you would lose your, your kids this way. So there was a lot of uh, protection. So it was not only coming from, you know, the outside, the, you know, the, the Ottoman world, it was coming from within the family too in order to protect people. Um, and it meant that women, you know, had very few rights. So Serbui Dusap um, was very lucky because she grew up um, in an environment in Constantinople where her mother was very enlightened and educated and involved in Armenian educational um, institutions. So that was a huge factor for Serbui Dusap. Um, and it was an upper class family. And uh, she, she had an excellent education. Um, and she, you know, she learned French. She, she obviously knew Armenian. She, and she learned, um, you know, she knew a lot of languages. And she could see what was happening. Even though she was living in Constantinople, she knew that the situation was terrible, you know, um, all across, you know, um, all across the provinces. And so that inspired her to write uh, several articles about women and their, their, uh, their rights and, and their struggle for human rights and the importance of educating women um, and uh, for women to be able to pursue 
you know, uh, a, you know, to pursue something that they, they believed in in life, not to be only, you know, uh, stuck in the home, you know, that they would be able to have a real life, you know, and to pursue something that was meaningful to them. So she was, she was very much a, um, you know, a believer in women's rights, a fighter for women's rights. She wrote, you know, and she wrote about it. And then she published her first book, Maida, which was, it's a love story. But in, in this love story, she presents the problems, the difficulties, the challenges that women faced in order to actually live, uh, you know, live a purposeful, meaningful life, you know, to, to pursue their own, their own um, lives with, with dignity and respect. She wrote, that's what the, the novel is about. And it created a furor. It created a fear in the community in Constantinople. And she was highly criticized by some of the male authors. Um, they thought that she, you know, she was um, attacking the, you know, the sanctity of the Armenian family. Um, and uh, she wasn't encouraged by the other, by, by many of these men. However, the book sold out the first printing right away and it went into a second printing, it was very popular. People were reading it. And she was an inspiration to Zabel Yassayan. And we learn about that in, in Zabel Yassayan's memoir um, because Zabel Yassayan went to visit her. She, Zabel was about, you know, she was a teenager and she and her other friend who was also a feminist, they decided that they would go meet Serpui Dusap. So they went to her home and, and met her and uh, Serpui Dusap gave them very sage and... Uh, she said, uh, you know, it's all well and good to want to be writers. And, you know, that's great. But you have to realize that if you're going to be a writer, you have to be much better than the male writers. Because otherwise, you know, no one will give you any credit whatsoever. Absolutely. As any kind of a minority, you're, you have to be two, three times better just to be at the same level as the, the establishment when you were um, talking about how um, Zabel went to meet Serpuhi, I, I had goosebumps because it's like these two incredible um, writers, activists of their time meeting. I mean, if this was a film, you could start the film there and then have flashbacks. It's just so incredible. It's unbelievable um, that, uh, that, that this happened and Again, I'm ashamed that I didn't know much about it. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic uh, on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Victor Rami, and I'm speaking with Judy Saryan, whom I call a Renaissance woman because she's had uh, so many different successes in different fields from the financial industry being a pundit on uh, CNN, MSNBC, um, different networks, uh, as well as now also through her writing, editing, and bringing and translating, or being part of a group that translates very important works of um, Armenian women, feminist women, uh, about the genocide. When you were talking about women being abducted and not just in, uh, in Anatolia, eastern part of the Ottoman Empire, but also in, in Constantinople, you know, of course, we live with the trauma of of reading about eyewitnesses. I, years ago, I read this book. It was all eyewitness accounts of the genocide of of how, uh, you know, girls from like 10 years up were taken, um, uh, you know, they're taken as slaves. Um, I have to say it's sex slaves sometimes. Sometimes they were forced into marriage um, uh, and uh you know, the, the eyewitness accounts of, of women who, who preferred to die than to be taken by um, the, the, the Turkish into slaves. So they would hold each other's hands and they would do a, a group suicide. They would um, run off a cliff. Uh, it's just, and, and then you said trauma, the name of the um, uh, Serpui's book and I'm thinking this trauma just continues. It's like Armenian, the Armenian uh, people for over a hundred years have, we've just lived in this trauma and it just keeps sort of coming up again. And of course we're back to that um, since the, the 2020 
uh, unprovoked attack on Armenians of Artsakh by Azerbaijan and Turkey, which uh, to a degree still continues, um, especially the disinformation and the propaganda. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm just so, I'm so grateful that you've done this because the voices of these women, they, they have to be heard and, and everyone, you know, should read about them and know about them. I was also um, thinking about when you, when you talked about Serpuhi and how her book uh, created this uproar, you know, in 1880s, I thought about the, the play A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen, which, um, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the the first women's movement essentially started in the 1850s, and uh, when Ibsen wrote the the play, uh, you know, he was uh, Norwegian, and a lot of uh, people thought it was a feminist play, and there was a huge uproar in uh, in Europe, and they wouldn't uh, allow him to produce his plays in many European um, playhouses. He had to go to Germany to do it because. How dare a woman who's been abused by her husband for you know a couple of decades decides that she's going to leave him? Um, so it's uh, it's interesting that this sort of you know um, it, you know from Western and Northern Europe, Scandinavia to uh, Ottoman Empire, women were uh, experiencing the same thing, but yet she had the courage to really stand up under much more severe circumstances than a woman who would uh, do the same like in England or France or Scandinavia. Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is really amazing how, how a group, there was a group of Armenian women who stood up and actually even before Serpoli Dusap, there was Elbis Gesaratsyan and she's the very first um, Armenian feminist we know about. She published a journal um, in the 1860s called Guitar, you know, literally Guitar. And um, it's just, you know, reading a few pages of it, you know, her preface, it's it's so powerful. It's so, it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, what I would say is that Armenian, uh, Armenians in general always have the the desire to write their experiences. And I think this is something that goes back for generations. And, uh, you know, before before the 1850s, I mean, it goes back to the time of, you know, Mesro Mashtots and creating the alphabet. The Armenians have had this urge to write, to, to, to bear witness to their experiences. And we, you know, when we look at Armenian history, since the time of it's going back to the fifth century. We, you know, we see a time where the Armenians were often under attack. You know, you go from one, you know, one um, invading group to another, and I think this is part of the reason they wanted. You know, they were determined to leave their mark and to tell their story, and to you know, and and even on the churches. Even and bringing it to today, the churches that unfortunately are now under Azerbaijani control, particularly the most beautiful monastery, Dadivank, it's covered with Armenian inscriptions. They they say there are over a hundred Armenian inscriptions on this particular monastery, at this particular monastery. And it's only about, you know, three or four miles away from the border of, of uh, Artsakh, the, the new border, the, you know. And so it's in Azerbaijani territory. And the Azerbaijanis recently said that they're going to obliterate all of these stone carvings that demonstrate that the church is Armenian because they have this, you know, cockamamie idea that these churches are not Armenian, even though every piece of evidence and every, you know, respected scholar you know, would, would put their life on it, that these are Armenian buildings. These are, this were built by Armenians. They were, you know, created, uh, you know, in the 12th century, the 11th century, we, we, you know, they, they even go back in, in Artsakh to like the, um, the sixth, the fifth and sixth centuries um, because of the monastery uh, where uh, 
Mesrob first taught the Armenian language is right there. Maranas, Maranas, yeah. yeah. Maranas, I'm so, sorry. Yeah, so it's just, um, you know, it's it's right to the present where the Azerbaijanis have, have threatened to, uh, to erase the evidence, the physical evidence. No wonder the Armenians were so determined to write and to carve in stone. You know, yeah. they tried to do whatever they could so that they they would not be erased. And I think, to me, this is um, this is the reason why Armenians are are still you know alive today and still uh, using their voices you know to speak up to speak out because it's it's in our blood that we need to tell what's really going on. And that's why I'm I'm so you know when I first heard about your film, I thought yes, this is exactly what we do. We correct you know, the narrative. We make sure the truth gets out. We're yeah. not going to allow these lies, you know, yeah. these lies to, to, to suddenly become the reality. Because as yeah. you know, the narrative, whoever tells the narrative creates the reality. Yeah, and, and soon it, will be, it becomes uh, their version of the truth. And, right. and just for those who don't know, so Azerbaijan, a nation that uh, was really formed as an administrative uh, oblast of the USSR in 1918 to gather a lot of, um, lot of nomadic tribes, uh, only lasted two years before the USSR took over and it was dissolved into SSR, became uh, Azerbaijan SSR, and only gained its sovereignty as a nation for the first time in 1991, they had to find a way um, to claim that the churches and monasteries and cemeteries and such in all the occupied land that belonged to Artsakh, essentially Armenia, that some of them are uh, in fact not Armenian. <laughs> so they said, well, well how, how can we do this? Okay, let's go back and look at this civilization that um, after four, several hundred years, they basically, they died out. It was called the Caucasian Albanians that lived nowhere near Artsakh. So uh, let's concoct this absurd story of uh, how these churches that have, you know, over a millennia of Armenian carvings and writings and evidence, and there's documents and manuscripts, we will say that they were actually Caucasian Albanian and they are threatening. They've already damaged or completely demolished several churches, but now they are threatening in a very boldly to do more. Um, and if you're thinking, well, how can they get away with it? It's because a lot of international bodies and organizations that would do something are, uh, for lack of better way of saying it, are very thirsty for Caspian oil and gas so they placate to Azerbaijan and its dictator, President Aliyev, uh, including UNESCO. Several years ago, Aliyev and his wife donated $5 million to UNESCO. And uh, his wife is also the vice president of the country, um, got herself a seat on the board of UNESCO. And without going too deep into it, um, it's all about part of the, the Azerbaijan laundromat and the caviar diplomacy of uh, just making, just completely creating false narratives, disinformation, uh, and if need be, you hire publicists and, uh, uh, you know, PR firms and lobbyists to uh, convince policymakers, stakeholders, journalists, even historians, even universities, they try to penetrate into Oxford University um, of their version of what happened. Um, so anyways, I didn't want to go off topic, but I want to give listeners context as to what is happening now and what Judy was talking about. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic uh, on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and I'm speaking with Judy Saryan, whom I call a Renaissance woman because she's had... Uh, she, so many different successes in different fields from the financial industry being a pundit on uh, CNN, MSNBC, um, different networks, 
uh, as well as now also through her writing, editing, and bringing and translating or being part of a group that translates very important works of um, Armenian women, feminist women uh, about the genocide. And Judy, I know that you have to run, but I wanted to also bring up your uh, upcoming book, uh, The Invisible Ink, who you said that your uh, grandmother and your father have sort of tentatively named uh, the book that title, which is um, going to be published soon. Uh, if you can tell us a little bit about that. Oh, thanks for asking. Yes, I've been, um, I've actually been working on this for, for a very long time. And, um, you know, my, um, my father um, and my grandmother were both genocide survivors. Um, and actually, my, my grandmother and my grandfather on my mother's side were also genocide survivors. So, um, you know, so the, the genocide has, has played, a, played a very important role in my childhood, in my upbringing. Um, and so it, it, you know, I had so many questions that I had, you know, that I had to ask my, my um, father in particular about, you know, about his life uh, growing up in this small village um, in the province of Dikranagert, uh, which is now known as Diyarbakir in Turkey. Um, and so I, I wrote down his story and I, and I, and I kept it and I, and I thought about it. But then I realized I knew very little about his mother's story because they were separated when he was very young, um, you know, probably around four and a half years old. They were separated because of the deportations. So, you know, first his father was killed, um, you know, was was uh, taken away and killed by by the Turkish army, which is what they did to most of the men in, in the villages, um, in the provinces of, you know, the Armenian uh, provinces. And then, um, you know, on the day of the deportations, his mother and his three siblings were taken away, you know, along with the rest of the Armenians from his small village um, or town, I should say. Um, and then, but he was hidden by his grandmother. My father, you know, was able to be saved because he was hidden by my grandmother and she was able to stay in the town because for two reasons. One, her son, one, the one remaining son there was a blacksmith and they needed, they needed a blacksmith for uh, shoeing the horses for the army. Mm. And he was the last remaining blacksmith because the other Armenian men who were blacksmiths had been killed already. He was 15 years old. So they figured, okay, he's young, we'll let him stay. And my grandmother was also a healer. And so she was able to stay. So they hid my father. And then um, anyway, so that's, that's sort of the foundation of the story. But what happens is that, you know, I didn't really know what happened to my grandmother. She survived and she uh, lived most of her, all the rest of her life in, um, in um, you know, first right on the border in, in, in Raqqa you know, on the, on the border with uh, Turkey, and then later in Aleppo. But she survived, but we, I didn't know her story, and I wanted to find out. So in the process of doing this work on Zabel Yesayan and bringing out the voices of Armenian feminists, I wanted to bring out the voice of my Armenian grandmother, whose voice had been lost. So I've been working on that. And I've got a book now, and um, and it's 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 to to a great extent, not only, but to a great extent, it's her voice coming out. It's also my father, and it's you know it's this feeling of 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 uh, you know this this the the trauma that they both experienced, you know, and and how it separated them. I want to find a way to you know after they they both passed away. Um, you know, to bring them together in this book. It's your homage, it's your labor of love. I can't wait to read it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, um, so, well, I, you know, I'm still working on it with my, um, you know, with, uh, with a very fine writer, Nancy Agabian, uh, who's giving me excellent uh, advice. But I, I, we're getting, I'm getting close. I, I feel good about it. Well, well, we'll talk again when you're either, you know, it's about to be, you know, published or right after we'll, we'll have another uh, chat so we can just talk about that book. But before we go, um, Judy, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, 
um, perhaps get the books um, that you were um, involved in translating and all of that and edited um, where, where, you know, is there a website or any other way that they can get in touch? Yes. Um, well, there are a couple of, of ways, you know, um, I'm on the board of the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research, Nasser, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a bookstore, we have a library, so all you need to do is go online and, and look up uh, the National Association for Armenian Studies and Research, and you'll find the website, and you can, you know, find the bookstore, and, and we have, you know, um, more than a thousand books in English. Um, on our, all kinds of Armenian topics. So that's, that's the first place to go. There's also the Armenian International Women's Association. And, um, you know, I've been involved with them since uh, the inception, um, I think 35 years ago. Um, and it's, uh, both of these organizations are, are based in the Boston area. Um, so, you know, we have a, a lively and dedicated Armenian community here. Um, it, it's much smaller than the one on the West Coast, but we're, you know, we're, we're uh, as I said, very devoted. And um, so those would be the two primary places to go. Of course, there's Abriel Books um, in Glendale, which is another good place. And, you know, if people uh, want to reach me, um, I'd be happy to give my email. It's uh, jasarian at gmail.com. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, um, Judy, very much. I know you, you have to run because you're teaching a uh, you're teaching a university class, you're lecturing. So I appreciate your time and, uh, and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Vic. This was my pleasure. And um, yes, I'm, I, I really appreciate being able to talk about my favorite subjects. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Judy. Well, that was my interview with uh, Judy Sarian, who is a Renaissance woman uh, in her own right, uh, and she's also opened my eyes to the fact that Armenian women uh, were not uh, any different from women all over Europe and throughout the world who uh, started a women's rights movement in the 1850s on. Um, and the two authors that we spoke about uh, who in the 1880s were talking about women's rights and social justice so uh, it's just been fascinating. Thank you, Judy, for being on The Blonde Post with Vic, and I hope to speak with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blonde Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie.